This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend warriors of Michigan politics and government. Huzzah! A bipartisan budget deal between Governor Gretchen Whitmer and the Republican-controlled legislature for fiscal year 2020, which ends in less than three months, was reached this week. There had been a $2.2 billion hole with three months left. But on coronavirus, are we headed backwards? Michigan reported 543 new COVID-19 cases by midweek, the largest number in more than 30 days. Overall, Michigan has reported nearly 65,000 cases. Another 15 new deaths were reported by midweek, raising the total number of deaths to nearly 6,000. Over the last week, Michigan is averaging 332 new cases a day, And in the seven days prior to that, June 19th to 25th, the average was 241 new cases a day. Between June 12th and 18th, the daily average was 160 a day. The highest one-day total we had in Michigan was 1,953. That's nearly 2,000 back on April 3rd. So we're still not sliding that far backward yet. Of course, These numbers are not even close to the daily numbers being reported in higher populated southern states. Texas, for instance, reported just over 8,000 new cases on Wednesday. I know they're a bigger state, but not that much bigger. Florida reported 6,500 new cases approximately on Wednesday. Arizona reported 4,877, 4,877 new cases. Now, one step forward, two steps back in terms of what I just got through talking about. Governor Gretchen Whitmer is obviously skittish about these numbers in Michigan. Yes, she signed a couple of bills this week that we have talked about on this program that might pay off eventually for Michigan's bars and restaurants, but not this 4th of July weekend. The governor signed bills that would allow social districts to be created in urban downtown areas where people could drink alcohol in the open air and could get cocktails to go from eating and drinking establishments to be consumed in the social district or taken to a home or office. But then Big Gretch said no on the 4th of July to indoor bar service anywhere in Michigan, south of Manistee, meaning almost all of metropolitan Michigan. Bummer! The hospitality industry cannot catch a break. They're furious. Item number three, Big Gretch decided that in the wake of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis last month and in response to protests in the state capitol and elsewhere as a result, It was time to strip the name Lewis Cass, C-A-S-S, Lewis Cass, off a prominent historic downtown state office building in Lansing. Supposedly, Cass, who was a Michigan territorial governor, a U.S. senator, and the Democratic Party's nominee for president in 1848, 
was a slaveholder, although that is disputed. Whitmer isn't waiting for clarification on Cass's relationship with slavery. Instead, she named the building anew. It's going to be called the Elliot Larson Building after the sponsors of Michigan's 1976 Civil Rights Act. Daisy Elliott was an African-American Democrat from Detroit, and Mel Larson was a white Republican from northeastern Oakland County. I served with them both. And now Democrats in Congress are demanding that Cass's statue in the nation's capital in Washington, D.C. be removed and replaced with someone else. They're just not saying who yet. They don't know, probably. Item number four. An Ingham County circuit judge is giving Enbridge Energy more time to investigate and report on the damaged pipeline in the Straits of Mackinac and says if the engineering firm satisfies him, he may allow Enbridge to reopen the pipeline, which, which he has at least temporarily shut down. In the meantime, however, the state's Public Service Commission says Enbridge cannot just assume they can proceed with building their tunnel to house the pipeline as Enbridge had planned. Instead, the PSC says Enbridge will have to get the agency's approval. So this continues to be a story that seemingly will never end. Item number five. The Supreme Court of the United States issued an important decision on state government aid to private education this week. The Supreme said a state can decide it does not want to grant such aid, but if it allows it, it cannot discriminate against a private school or college because it has a religious affiliation. Now, whether that affects Michigan remains to be seen because we have one of the most sweeping and total bans on state aid to private education in the entire country, and we seemingly don't discriminate whether it is religious or non-religious. Nevertheless, many expect litigation to now ensue that will clarify this issue going forward if it needs further clarification. Item number six, absentee ballot requests are up to one million going into the August 4th primary election. That's nearly four times as many as in the last presidential election year four years ago in 2016. Item number seven, a total of 584,424, that's nearly 600,000 Michiganders, were receiving unemployment insurance benefits for the week of June 13th but that dropped the state's unemployment rate to 13.6%. The Great Lakes state was not among the country's top 10 in unemployment for that week, falling to 13th on the list, according to the U.S. Department of Labor. Back on April 25th, by contrast, Michigan had the nation's highest unemployment rate among the states at 23.14% and with nearly 1 million Michiganders collecting unemployment. Item number eight, out-of-hospital deaths recorded by emergency medical service providers is up 62% this spring over last year as people avoid the hospital amid the COVID-19 pandemic at their own peril. 
heart attacks occurring outside the hospital from March 15th to March 23rd increased 43% compared to the same dates in 2019, according to what Michigan EMS agencies are reporting. But was it really fear of the hospital that has caused this leap upward? Or was it the economic calamity that has occurred here in Michigan over the last four months that we have discussed on this program in the last few weeks. We're going to have to wait until this whole thing is over, folks, and look back at everything that has happened, everything that has gone on, and make a colder-eyed analysis of what we did right, what we did wrong as a state, as a government, and how we here in Michigan handled coronavirus. Going back to the issue of Lewis Cass, I'll just mention this in case people don't know it. Each state has allowed two prominent political figures to be stationed in statue form in the nation's capital in Washington, D.C. And ours have been Lewis Cass and Zachariah Chandler. But 10 years ago, Zachariah Chandler, who was a Republican, in the late 19th century and an abolitionist strongly uh, anti-slavery was replaced with our former president, Gerald R. Ford. So there's a Republican president in the Capitol in statue form, plus Lewis Cass, a Democrat. Let's see what happens with Lewis Cass going forward. I'm going to be back in a minute with a very special guest. You're going to like this. Stay tuned. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned, and boy, are we fortunate to have a very special guest. She is Shana Roth. Shana Roth, thank you so much for being our guest on The Political Insider. Oh, thanks for having me, Bill. Okay. Who is Shana Roth? Now, (laughs) I just got to say... I think she tells me she was raised on a steady diet of Nancy Drew novels. Uh, She was always fascinated by crime and a good mystery. Uh, She graduated from law school. She became a prosecuting attorney at age 24. But then she switched to journalism in 2016. She was a political reporter for the Michigan Public Radio Network. She's been a guest on popular shows like 1A, Here and Now, all Things Considered, Broadly, Bustle, and NPR. She's now an investigative journalist for the Grand Rapids Press and M Live. She's also an adjunct professor of journalism and law at Aquinas College in Grand Rapids. Not only that, but she gave birth to her first baby in April, a girl named Eleanor East Roth, if I'm not mistaken, and I understand <laughs> Uh, she wrote a sizable portion of that book uh, that is coming out this month, and that's why we have her here on the show. It's called Cold Cases, and she wrote that book, most of it, while she was pregnant. Is that correct, Shana? That is correct. Pretty much uh, close to all of it was written while I was pregnant, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, what an accomplishment. Well, look, let me just ask you, is this your first book? And why this subject, and what inspired you to write it? 
It is my first book, um, and it's kind of an interesting way that it all came about. I was actually approached by the publisher, Ulysses Press. They were looking to do a book about a bunch of different cold cases. Um, as you know, true crime is you know a very popular subject in our in our culture right now. Between podcasts, documentaries, you know, you can't really turn on the TV without seeing something involving crime cases. And they were looking to do a cold cases collection. They knew about me from Facebook, and they reached out to me actually while I was on vacation in Ireland and Iceland. I was on a cruise ship, and I got an email from them saying, <laughs> hey, we're, we're working on this book. We would like for you to write it. And I didn't have email at the time, or I didn't have Internet access. It was like a, a downloaded email. So I you know, was waiting around for the next day so that I could reach out to them and be like, hey, I'm very interested in this. Um, so when I got back from my trip, we... We chatted about it. I heard what sort of their ideas were for the book, and I loved it, this idea that it be a sort of conversational tone type of book that it, you know, covers different types of cold cases. There were a few that they were really interested in including, uh, but I got to pick the rest of them. And so it was a very kind of hands-off from their perspective, uh, which was great, and that's how it all came about. And now it's, it's finally here. <laughs> Well, now, if I'm not mistaken, a pregnancy lasts nine months, <laughs> and I, I, so I'm asking if you wrote most of it while you were pregnant. I mean, you got it started before you became pregnant. I mean, how much did it? How long did it take you all together to write the book? About a year, would you say? It was, yeah, it was about a year that, from when they reached out to me to when it was public, when it you know to about now. So I mean, maybe a little bit over a year. The actual writing was probably close to 10 or 11 months. Well, look, I've read the book, and it is fabulous. I mean, okay. everybody ought to get this book. Uh, tell us a little bit, how do you get it, where do you get it, when's it coming out, everything. It is officially going to be released on July 14th, and you can get it pretty much wherever books are sold. I know a lot of bookstores right now are are closed or they're they're going through some things because of uh, the coronavirus, so you can definitely pre-order it on Amazon. If you go to IndieBound.com, if you're interested in supporting local bookstores, uh, and you type in either my name or the name of the book, you can find out what local bookstores are going to be covering it or are going to be um, carrying it. So it's in a bunch of different places around Michigan. It's in Schuler's. It's going to be in uh, Nikolai Books in Ann Arbor. It's, it's, you know, it's kind of all over the place. So you can either go via Amazon or you can go through IndieBound or you can go through Target. Um, I think Walmart might have it as well. It's, it's pretty much wherever, you, wherever books are sold, you can probably find it. Well, forget the New York Times bestseller list, although I'm sure it's going to make that list. But it's definitely <laughs> on the Michigan Talk Network bestseller list, and it's on the Ballinger Report top seller list. No question about it. This thing is incredibly interesting, fascinating, a great read, very fast, very easy. There are 10 chapters, uh, as I counted them, each on a separate true murder mystery. But there are two that have Michigan connections, right? I mean, the first one is the famous D.B. Cooper and his big jump. Can you tell us about that? Was there any connection with Michigan on that? Yeah, so it's it's been very interesting. I wanted to do, you know, a lot of them are murder cases, but I wanted to do some that were just general unsolved cases. I didn't want to be limited to murder. So there's the kidnapping uh, or disappearance, actually, of Natalie Holloway. 
there's, like you said, the D.B. Cooper case. There's the Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum heist. But D.B. Cooper was really fun for me because as I was going through, I found out that there was a lot of connections between D.B. Cooper and Michigan, or at least theories surrounding D.B. Cooper and Michigan. There's two sort of big uh, theories out there about D.B. Cooper and Michigan. Basically, the theories are that D.B. Cooper is a guy from Michigan or that lived in Michigan. So the first one came about, or one of them is from May of 2018, um, an author who published a book through a Grand Rapids publisher called D.B. Cooper and Me, A Criminal, A Spy, My Best Friend, claims that the Detroit-born Walter Walt Recca is D.B. Cooper. Um, now, Recca died in 2014. The, his, the, um, the book on it came out in 2018, so there was never a chance when the book came out for people to be like, hey, are you really D.B. Cooper? Um, but the author claims that he is Recca's best friend and that he that RECA has all these ties to, you know, criminal, uh, to, um, to government work, that he was in the military, um, that he worked as a private contractor after the hijacking, and basically that he was, in fact, D.B. Cooper. Now, RECA never, you know, sort of signed any sort of confession or, you know, formally wrote down any sort of confession. But the author, Carl, claims that he had a lot of conversations with him about it, and they went back and forth, and that he is confident that it was, in fact, Rekka who did it. Um, he doesn't really look like the police sketch that was released soon after uh, D.B. Cooper jumped out of the plane. They, you know, he's got a mustache. They're, they're, they're pretty different. They have a different sort of build to them. Uh, however, there is a man who claims that he saw uh, this guy, this guy Rekka, in a suit soaking wet at a coffee shop uh, <laughs> right after the hijacking. So that's kind of where part of his his evidence, if you will, comes from. Well, let me ask you this. We're assuming that everybody remembers or knows about D.B. Cooper's big jump or Rekka's big jump, whichever. <laughs> um, tell us just briefly, I mean, what was that all about? What happened oh, and when? Yes. So D.B. Cooper came from the days of, you know, the 1970s when it was very easy to get on a plane. It wasn't like today where you got to take your shoes off, you got to have ID and all this other stuff. Basically, you could show up at an airport with a suitcase and some cash and say, I need a ticket, and then just get on a plane. Okay, Um, let's hold it right there. I have got to continue this with you right after we take a short break. D.B. Cooper and his big jump with Shana Roth. Hang on. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back with author Shana Roth, who has an absolutely fabulous book coming out middle of this month, Cold Cases. You can't avoid reading this. Honestly, you're going to love it. But we left Shana here at the end of the first segment talking about D.B. Cooper. Uh, trying to get on a plane. Where was that? Oregon, Washington State. It was. So he boarded um, in Portland, Oregon, and then and the plane was headed towards Seattle, Washington. And then what happened? So he gets on the plane and he has a small briefcase and he has a note and he hands the note to his to a stewardess and she, when she opens it, it says, "Miss, I have a bomb here and I would like you to sit by me." And 
So he then dictates another message to her. He wanted $200,000. He wanted uh, two parachutes, and he wanted to be able to jump off the plane eventually, essentially. So, you know, he's on the plane. Eventually, the stewardess alerts other people that, hey, there's this guy here with a bomb. They get people off the plane. They refuel. So now the only people on the plane headed still to Seattle are a few of the, you know, the pilot and a few stewardesses and D.B. Cooper. By the time they finally touched down, D.B. Cooper is gone, and he had <laughs> jumped out somewhere over, you know, somewhere between Portland and Seattle and never to be seen again. And he had the cash with him, and it's been just this big, you know, American myth since the 1970s when he jumped, and people have had theories for years. I think pretty much everybody in every, you know, every state has somebody who's claiming, yeah, D.B. Cooper's from here, including Michigan. Wow. What a story. Look, uh, we could just spend the rest of our time talking about D.B. Cooper and the mystery that's unfolded ever since. But there are so many other good stories. Uh, another one with a Michigan connection, I believe, was the Christmas time murder in 1996 of Jean Benet Ramsey, who was a child beauty pageant champion at her home in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, and uh, her parents, John and Patty Ramsey, became prominent figures. Tell us about that. What happened? Um, and uh, I'll get into with you maybe a little bit about John Ramsey. Yeah, this is a really sad case that I'm sure everybody who's ever been to a supermarket from between, you know, 96 and today has seen John Benet Ramsey's face on some sort of a tabloid. It's just a case that has really endured in the public conscious. And she was, you know, a young child. Like you said, she was on the pageant circuit. And on Christmas Eve, her parents woke up and she was gone. And there was this crazy ransom note that was left behind. It was really long. It wasn't like, we have your daughter, send us money. It was, you know, really long and just really, you know, had some bizarre things. It was very specific, you know, saying, it started out with like saying, listen carefully. And then it was telling John Ramsey to, you know, rest up because this is all going to be very taxing on him. Um, So, you know, they alerted the authorities, the police came and eventually her body was found in the house. She had been strangled and murdered uh, in the basement of their home. And there has been a lot of theories, a lot of speculation that maybe the parents were involved, that maybe their uh, their son, Burke Ramsey, was involved. Um, and then there's a lot of other theories surrounding the case, that it was somebody that they knew. Some people say that it was sort of a random occurrence. Um, and then there's, you know, crazy people who claim that Katy Perry, the singer, songwriter, is actually John Benet Ramsey all grown up. <laughs> so it's just really, you know, one of those crazy cases. And like you said, it has a connection to Michigan because they had a summer home in Charlevoix, Michigan. And that's where they were headed. Right. Well, let me just jump in here. I'm just going to talk a little bit. And politics gets into this. I mean, how do mm-hmm. you get away from politics? Um Believe it or not, eight years after the murder of John Bonet in 2004, John Ramsey, the father, ran for state representative in Michigan's 105th House District, which no longer exists in the form it did then. It was a four-county enclave in northwestern Michigan that included Antrim, Charlevoix, Sheboygan, and Otsego counties. Ramsey was based in Charlevoix, as you pointed out, where he had had a family summer home for more than three decades. 
He had five opponents in the Republican primary in a district that was strongly Republican, about 60% Republican. I believe he was endorsed by the Michigan Chamber of Commerce, and he easily carried Charlevoix County in the primary. But another candidate, an attorney named Kevin Elsenheimer, was endorsed by the Farm Bureau and the Michigan Township Association, and Elsenheimer carried his home county of Antrim by an even larger margin than uh, Ramsey did in Charlevoix. And Elsenheimer won by about 510 votes with several of the other four candidates close behind. Elsenheimer, this is interesting, went on to be elected in November 2004. After two terms, he was elected by his peers in the state house to be their leader in 2009, 2010, when the Republicans were in the minority. Who did Elsenheimer beat out in a close vote for leader? None other than Brian Kelly, a freshman mm. state representative from Ionia County, who then went on to be elected lieutenant governor with Governor Rick Snyder in 2010 and served two terms in that job before being termed out uh, in 2018. As I think many of our listeners know, Kelly was defeated by Attorney General Bill Schuette in the Republican primary for governor. But what about Elsenheimer? Well, Governor Snyder took care of him. He appointed him 13th Circuit Court judge in a jurisdiction that included uh, Grand Traverse County, Antrim County, and Leelanau County. In fact, Elsenheimer is expected to rule in a few days on an important lawsuit filed by the Traverse City Record Eagle against the Grand Traverse County School District involving freedom of information. But what about Ramsey? Well, that was apparently the end of his political career. He never ran for anything again. I just want to ask you, Shane Roth, why did you think or do you think that John Ramsey would put himself out there eight years later uh, and run for state representative in Michigan uh, after everything he'd gone through and all the publicity about him? And he was a suspect uh, for eight years. Yeah, it's it's such a fascinating case. And their reaction to it and, and sort of the public's reaction to John and Patsy Ramsey has been really fascinating. I really delve into it in the book. I wasn't able to get into his political attempts as much in the book, but I, I think really what he was looking for was a way to be somebody other than the dead beauty queen's father. Um, you know, I think that they had a really hard time with that. I mean, they were in the press quite a bit, and it was always about the murder of his daughter. I think he was trying to find some sort of a new identity for himself. And actually, when I was, you know, preparing to speak with you, I found a Detroit Free Press article titled John Bonet Ramsey's Dad Set for New Start. And in it, he says that, you know, he wasn't going into politics for ego. He said, quote, I've already had my fair share, or to get his name in the paper, he said, I've already had my fair share of that. Um, and he really kind of talks about trying to find some sort of a fresh start and get a new chapter in their lives. And why he decided that politics was the way to go about doing that, I'm not 100% sure. But I do think that it was really just this attempt to try and be somebody other than, you know, his the, the, the father of a dead young girl. Well, at one point in the book, you talk about PYMG, pretty young white girl, pronounced Piwig, trademark <laughs> 2020, you say, uh, speaking of John Benet Ramsey. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so that's something that there's a couple of chapters that really kind of hit on that 
theme of our fascination with the death of pretty young white women or girls, and those include the Black Dahlia, a.k.a. Elizabeth Short, Natalie Holloway, and John Benet Ramsey. You know, these are cases that are so famous and at their at the time were all that anybody could talk about, and they still endured. You know, despite however many disappearances happened the year that Natalie Holloway disappeared, hers was the one that got all of the attention. Why? Probably because she was a beautiful, blonde, you know, affluent white girl. And that's what we see time and time again, even as far back as when the Black Dahlia was murdered. You know, it's it's a young, pretty white woman that gets all of the attention. So there's several chapters in my book that explore that a little bit and talk about, you know, why are we so fascinated with these types of victims? Exactly. Uh, we are going to continue this conversation. There's so much more to talk about. We've only got 10 minutes left. We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MDN. Here's Bill. We are back with Shana Roth, who is the author of a new book coming out this month, Cold Cases, fascinating book with some Michigan connections. We were talking about Piewig, pretty young white girl, the obsession with the news media and the public about the murders and deaths of pretty young white girls. Let me just ask you, Shana Roth, just in general, uh, what is your feeling about the way the news media has shaped the narratives about all these murders? I think the news media tends to be primarily responsible for the narrative of, of all of these cases. You know, if the news media isn't interested in in telling these stories and in following what is happening with these investigations, they kind of get lost. And that's something that happened with the Freeway Phantom, which is one of the chapters in the book. That was a series of uh, murders of young black girls who were left by the side of the road. And that one wasn't something that the news media followed. I mean, it was something that local D.C. uh, publications did some writing on and seemed to be frustrated with, but it didn't get that national attention that something like the disappearance of Natalie Holloway or John Benet, or the death of John Benet Ramsey got. And I think that really when we as reporters and as journalists are thinking about, you know, what stories are we going to cover, we have to really be conscious of our responsibility and of our role in determining you know, how much attention are these cases going to be getting, not just at the time, but, you know, potentially going forward for years to come. This plays right into the protests against racism we're experiencing right now, right? I mean, there's a double standard. The news media just has not been as fascinated with the deaths of young black girls as it has with young white girls. Absolutely. And I think we're kind of starting to see a shift with that. You know, now we're seeing a lot of media attention going towards um, the protests for uh, for the deaths of young Afri- or for, for the deaths of African American men and women at the hands of police, you know, those are starting to get a lot more attention than maybe they did 10, 20 years ago. There was a surprise development just this week, which uh, considers one of the cold cases perhaps solved, and this involves what is called the Golden State Killer. Somebody was sentenced in California this week. Can you tell us about that? And do you think the case of the Golden State Killer is now closed? Was justice done? 
Yeah, I mean, this is just really fascinating and, and interesting for me as a, as a writer in that my publisher very quickly emailed me and was like, hey, when we do a second print of the book, you got to rewrite the chapter. Because at the time I wrote it, Joseph James D'Angelo had been arrested and suspected of being the Golden State Killer, um, who was this prolific murderer, rapist, burglar um, that, you know, sort of was working throughout the Sacramento area to Orange County um, during the, the 60s and on. Um, and so he is somebody that was for a while on the radar. And like you said, just recently, he admitted that he was the Golden State Killer. Um, and so it's one of those things that I think, depending on who you ask, whether or not justice is going to be served is, is, is debatable. Um, you know, I think there are plenty of victims still out there who, you know, they just wanted for him to admit that he, that, that he did it, you know, that, that, you know, hearing him say like, yep, this, that was me. I did all these horrific things. I think that might feel like justice for them. And then there are others who are going to say that, you know, unless he, he is, you know, put to death or unless he spends the rest of his life in prison or, which is a very short life, he is quite old at this point, um, that, you know, they won't feel that justice can be done. Um, you know, so it really, it depends a lot on what their, that individual victim's perspective of justice is. Um, but I think that from what I've read about the hearings that took place when he admitted his guilt, you know, people were given the opportunity to, to speak about what had happened. And I think that that, for a lot of them, uh, was very... Uh, was very cathartic. Um, and he hasn't been sentenced yet. He's expected to be sentenced in August to life in prison without parole, um, which I would imagine for a lot of victims is, is going to feel very liberating for them to know that the person who is admitting to doing all these things is going to spend the rest of his life in prison. The other cases you cover in this book are the Zodiac Killer, the Black Dahlia, the disappearance of Natalie Holloway, the Freeway Phantom, the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run, the death of Amber Hagerman, and then there was one uh, that did not involve murder, and that was the Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum heist. Uh, we don't have much time, but why did you include that in the book? Because it's a really fun, interesting case that has gotten really no attention outside of Boston. I mean, this is probably the biggest museum heist in in u.s history there's a 10 million dollar reward for anybody who can find the arts the pieces of art that were stolen and it's one of those where i asked around like have you heard about this cold case and even the most ardent true crime fans were like no i have no idea what you're talking about so that was a really interesting interesting chapter to write an interesting case to look into because you know it's we don't think about art heists as being anything outside of the movies for the most part. But it was a very real thing that happened um, out in Boston, and you know, we're, we're still trying to figure it out. So I highly recommend reading that chapter, if only so that you can then try to solve the case and get a $10 million reward yourself. <laughs> that was when? Was it 1990? Uh, it was, let me double check. I believe it, yes, that it was in the 1990s that that happened. It was, yeah, so what, it's still a fairly new case. Um, that that has been that's been out there. Yep, March 18, 1990. So the pieces of art that were stolen were like including what? These were a few different. There were some Rembrandts that were stolen. Um, there was a Manet chaise tor- 
Tortoni, you're, you're asking me to say these art names out loud instead of just write them down. <laughs> um, so, you know, and there was one of the really big one was a were two Rembrandts, uh, Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee, and a Lady and Gentleman in Black. Um, and those were really, you know, not, you know, we're not talking about the Mona Lisa here, but these are pretty, pretty well known, well established, uh, important pieces of art that have been missing since the 1990s, and nobody knows where they are. Did Ulysses, uh, the publisher, get what they want, do you think, in this book? I mean, is this the first time anybody, and in this case it's you, has actually put together between the covers of a single book all these particular murders, even though individually many of them have gotten so much publicity over the years? I hope they got what they were looking for. You know, what I was really trying to do with this book was to do more than just say, you know, here are all of the facts and here's what happened in each individual case, because you can find that, you know, on the Internet. And there's plenty of books out there on, on several of these chapters. What I really wanted to do was to make it sound like a conversation with a friend, like you're sitting down having coffee and chatting about these cases. And to also include, you know, maybe a different way and a different perspective of thinking about these types of cases and questioning, you know, why are these ones important? Why did they, uh, you know, sort of stay within the public conscience? And what do they say about our culture? The D.B. Cooper chapter, I talk a lot about how it shows how Americans love an outlaw. Um, you know, there's, there's sort of these general themes that popped up in each, different, in each different case. So hopefully that will give readers a very fresh perspective on old cases. Well, you did a great job. And if anybody can write with humor about a subject like this, you could. Uh, you actually work in a little humor uh, in, uh, you know, the, the narrative, I think, throughout the way you write. It's very fascinating. Tell us again, how can people get the book? You can find it on Amazon, or if you want to support local bookstores, you can go to IndieBound.com, and if you type in either my name or the uh, title of the book, it will show you what local booksellers are going to be carrying it. Yeah, by the way, you spell Shana, C-H-E-Y-N-A, <laughs> Roth, right? Yes, right. And your daughter is growing fast, right? She's getting so big, she's going to be you know, three months old here pretty quick. It's, it's fascinating to watch her grow up right before our eyes. Well, Eleanor East Roth is your daughter. I, you know, I, I can't say at this point she knows that she can look forward to reading your book, but I know at some <laughs> point she will. Um, what about uh, future writing? Are you going to write another book? Do you think Ulysses will commission you? Do you plan to go off on your own? I mean, what about your journalism career? What about your broadcasting <laughs> career? I mean, you, you're juggling so many balls. Yeah, I mean, I would love to write another book. Um, you know, Ulysses and I, I think we're still trying to get this one out and get this the, the message out about this one, and then we'll kind of see. And, if, you know, I'd, I'd definitely be up for talking with them about writing another one. It was really just a very interesting uh, time, of, time of my life of going through and doing all this and, you know, looking through all the different archives of newspapers and, and trying to get a feel for all these cases was just was really fun and really fascinating. And so who knows? I would, you know, I'm never going to say no to to writing another book. Yeah. Well, you know what? Uh, we could go on and on. We haven't even gotten into about seven chapters, seven <laughs> murder cold cases that we could talk about because we want to keep listeners in suspense about what awaits them in their excitement when they rush to the bookstore or online to get this book. Shana Roth, thank you so much for being our guest. You did a great job talking about your forthcoming book, Cold Cases, a True Crime Collection. Thank you, Shana Roth. Thank you so much. 
We'll be back next week.